Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. We are here the week of November 28th through December 1st, 2023. It's December. December. Wow. Countdown to Christmas is here. Turn on that 25 days of Christmas. Speaking of that, um, you know, I'm going to give you a little parenting advice. Are you oh, ready? Okay. You keep that Tuck elf this on one it. in the back pocket. You keep that elf on the shelf on the shelf at Target is what you do. You, you just do, leave it. Leave it there. You don't do mess with it. Bring that voodoo into your home. <laughs> I, You know, my sister does that, and I get the uh, daily snaps. It is a lot of work for a parent be. to keep up with that, that well, elf. Uh, let me get. Let me run through what happens. Okay. It's like 11, 11.30. You just got done watching something. I don't know, some stupid Golden Bachelor or something. And then you look at each other and you go, oh, we forgot the elf. Oh, man, this sounds like way too personal of a, a, a story. I'm, is this a hypothetical or is no, this a... No, it's hypothetical. Okay. And then you say, oh, we forgot the elf. And you're like, just throw it, oh, throw just, it somewhere. Yeah, throw just it down the stairs. Throw it down the stairs. Throw Actually, it in the light garbage it on disposal. Fire. Light it on fire. So no elves on the shelves in the brand. Well, I'm, no, I'm, I'm trying to stop it. I, I think if I spread the word... Of sp- elves in the dumpster. Of elves in the dumpster. Just save yourself, guys. Yeah. Christmas is work. hard enough. Yeah, exactly. Do just it. just uh, hide the pickle or whatever the one, the, uh, the, the other anyway. holiday is. <laughs> anyway. Uh, ex uh, parte summary. Let's go ahead, Carson. What do you got? All right. First case we have is State versus Esh and step-by-step jury instructions. Have in Ray a State of Rita Walker. Um, and that is will contest and a reversal. Wow. Also hearsay. So, State versus Ernest. Show me the money. Brilliant. All right. Let's get it started, Carson. Go right ahead. All righty. So we start out with State versus Esh, and this is an appeal out of the district court for Custer County, and it's an appeal after a trial conviction for first-degree murder, use of a deadly weapon to commit a felony, and possession of a deadly weapon by a prohibited person. And so as a result of this, Esh received a life sentence, and so this appeal was directly filed with the Supreme Court. And basically the underlying facts here was that Esh had a stepmother who had had a long-standing bad relationship with uh, himself and then also with his uh, father, and Esh was incarcerated sometime, I believe, around uh, 2012. Um, And during that point in time, um, Esh's father killed himself and also had uh, disinherited Esh. And so um, that kind of underlies what led to uh, the tensions between the family. And at some point in time, uh, Esh basically uh, snaps, uh, goes to the stepmother's um, home, and his um, story of the facts is that he went there to ask about buying the property and she said some derogatory things about his father taking his own life and so then he shot him Uh, there were two uh, grandchildren present at that point in time and they the oldest i believe was nine and they gave an account that basically ash just walked in and shot the uh, the stepmother in 2020 and so on appeal the big issues uh revolve around jury instructions here because essentially there was no question whether or not esh had killed the stepmother only uh what degree of uh, murder it was going to be and so on appeal uh, they dealt a lot with the uh, instruction regarding uh, the steps of going through um 
first degree murder, second degree murder, and manslaughter, and basically how the uh, jury instructions give an instruction on finding uh, e- each of those before you can find the next. And so, again, a ton of discussion in this opinion on jury instructions. Uh, again, revolving around burdens of proof, revolving around those step-by-step instructions uh, when in regards to murder matters and, and murder cases. And then there was a long uh, discussion on um, intoxication and uh, how that should be instructed. And basically, if there was error by uh, trial counsel in this case for not objecting to the uh, jury instruction that ended up being given. And it was actually kind of an interesting and, and a little bit convoluted section because it kind of talks about how uh, the jury instruction that was used didn't really conform with the pattern instruction pattern jury instruction uh, but it gave a correct summation of the law and then the trial counsel had discussed uh, the intoxication instruction correctly and so you know in the end they didn't find any error but they you know basically demonstrate here that the jury instruction and the uh, law regarding that intoxication defense you know it's fairly convoluted and so again if if you have an opinion where you're dealing with uh, any kind of an intoxication defense I think this is one you probably want to look at uh, because there's quite a discussion on it and the um, law surrounding it. They then went into a little bit of, you know, some of the the common things we see here. There was some 404 evidence um, that it was alleged it was ineffective for objecting to. Uh, Here, basically, you know, it's it's another one of these cases where the appellate courts are saying we're not going to retry it and we're not going to get into trial counsel's brains as to why they were doing what they were doing and so here the 404 evidence was evidence of like past convictions and issues that Esh had had with the family and they had said here you know it looks actually like trial counsel was trying to demonstrate that this had been a long time issue with the stepmother that had never resulted in violence and so they were trying to to uh, potentially maybe even use this 404 evidence to demonstrate that it was upon a sudden quarrel and wasn't something that was premeditated. And so they they weren't going to reevaluate that evidence. And then there was a a line of questioning where uh, the witness ended up saying at least uh, part of an answer to an objected question uh, that Esch believes his trial counsel should have moved for a mistrial on. And it's another one of those, uh, you know, goofy things where the trial court had done everything right as far as um, sustaining the objection, telling the uh, jury to disregard and then striking it from the record. Uh, But, you know, as we all know, it's kind of one of those things where you can't put toothpaste back in the jar after it or back in the uh, tube after it's out. And so Esh was basically saying that his trial counsel should have moved uh, for a a mistrial based on that. But the Supreme Court did not find uh, prejudice uh, that rose to the level of a right to uh, have a fair trial. And so they didn't grant any relief for Esh on that. And then there were a couple of other claims in regards to the insufficient record. And so it was affirmed. The interesting piece I will note, just as a sidebar, is that uh, Justice Miller Lehrman concurred basically to say that the um, Supreme Court and and maybe in in general, uh, it was it's time to start looking at the step by step instruction process in first degree murder cases, um, and that maybe we should uh, reevaluate 
how that looks and uh, maybe should look at, at kind of rewriting those jury instructions. So that's kind of the interesting, uh, I guess, teaser that was left at the end of this opinion. Yeah, I mean, it, it uh, puts the issue out there for a commission or something to look into to see if we can change that uh, area. So it becomes a little less con- uh, convoluted because the distinctions there are, right? Yeah, they be, it's, yeah, it's, and even when you read this opinion, it's, incredibly difficult and you could see where a jury would get so confused what exactly are we supposed to be doing here we've got all these different instructions but we have to decide if you did this first and then this first and then that and so yeah i I think this is maybe kind of a a situation where it's like all right this is workable but let's think about maybe taking a look at it all right in ray estate of rita walker mark e walker appellant versus michael walker appley Um, This had to do with a uh, purported will that was executed 11 days prior to Ms. Walker's passing. Um, The will gave everything to uh, Mark and not to Michael and made him PR. Um, I might have that reversed. Some M name. Let's just leave it at that. So uh, that was... The names are irrelevant. I mean, at a certain point. One brother got everything. Another brother didn't in this purported will. And that what they tried to do was they tried to offer a exhibit which was which purported to be a prior will um, from 2016, and it was not that had no witnesses, so it wasn't a proper will. It was just kind of a, a statement, and then it was notarized. And the trial court here excluded this. This is Exhibit Seven. The trial court here ex- excluded that prior will. Uh, or what purported to be a will, that prior statement, because it was hearsay and irrelevant. Um, they argued that it was a state of mind exception and on a uh, motion for new trial, and that was denied. They eventually found that the um, testator had a lack of capacity and there was undue influence involved, and um, that was the ultimate finding, which was appealed. Now, the court here reversed uh, the Supreme Court here reversed. They took it uh, from the Court of Appeals docket, and they ended up reversing it, and they said that the Exhibit 7 was actually admissible. Uh, it was it was hearsay. Everybody ag- agreed it was hearsay, but it had that recognized exception under the state of mind. And even if it wasn't an actual you know, enforceable, valid will, that doesn't mean that it's irrelevant. Um, just because it couldn't be enforced as a will doesn't mean it might go to show the testator's intent uh, with the other will and the lack of undue influence. So that exclusion of that document um, through the hearsay and relevant objections actually unfairly prejudiced a substantial right in the appellant and it was uh, worthy of a reversal and a remand for further proceedings. So they're going to go back. I assume Exhibit 7 is going to be admitted at that time, assuming there's no other issues. And then we'll have to see uh, what comes of that. But, uh, yeah, if you have a hearsay issue, if you have a will contest, uh, this is certainly a case to look at uh, as far as pleadings-wise or otherwise to to get a handle on how things would go. A good discussion of hearsay and an exception to the hearsay rule for state of mind. Also, a good discussion of, you know, what makes a valid will in Nebraska. So a good one to take a look at. Hearsay, every lawyer's favorite topic. <sighs> Sometimes, some days. When you're on one side of it, it's great. And when you're on the other side of it, maybe not so much. Yeah. Okay, next case we come to is State of Nebraska versus Ernest. And this is an appeal from a uh, 
plea-based conviction of driving under the influence, causing serious bodily injury, and third-degree assault. And the appeal is uh, based on a couple of things. One, uh, the district court not considering uh, the defendant's ability to pay a $10,000 fine, and then also that the district court had sentenced him under misunderstandings. And so basically what happens here is that Ernst had been involved in a traffic accident um, where that had resulted in uh, bodily injury. He had tested a, at a blood alcohol level of 0.292, um, and so then he accepts this plea-based conviction. And at the sentencing, the state, uh, or the uh, sound, sentencing judge essentially says, I'm at a loss for what to do with you, but all I know is I need to protect the public, um, and also says at one point that I believe I have to sentence you uh, consecutively in these cases. And so the district courts ends up sentencing Ernest to uh, three years imprisonment with 18 months post-release supervision, a $10,000 fine, and a 15-year license revocation, and then uh, sentences him to a year and a $1,000 fine on the uh, third-degree assault to be uh, served consecutively. And so on appeal, Ernst argues that uh, under Nebraska Revised Statute 29-2206 that the district court ha could only impose a fine if it first determined uh, that he had an ability to pay. And so uh, the uh, Supreme Court here goes through uh, where courts and magistrates have the power to uh, impose a uh, fine within a sentence. And basically, um, Ernst, they're, they're saying here is uh, reading something into the statute that doesn't exist as far as um, a requirement that the district court consider ability to pay. And so what they do talk about is that there are statutes that offer relief should a defendant not have an ability to pay. Uh, but because this is something that isn't alleged um, on appeal um, and, and something that he may be entitled to, but he's not asking for relief under, um, you know, they do list out the statutes where a defendant uh, can be granted relief in, in cases where they have no ability to pay. Uh, but basically they say that that issue isn't before them. And so they don't address that. Um, and then the other issue which comes up, which is kind of interesting, is that uh, the district court in its uh, sentencing statements basically said that it felt that it had to sentence him under the law uh, to consecutive sentences in these matters. And that was an incorrect statement of the law. Um, and so the, court, the Supreme Court here says that generally that would uh, require the matter to be uh, remanded in order to ensure what the district court meant. Uh, but here, uh, basically, they, they say when looking at the appellate transcript, uh, if you read between the lines, uh, the district court was saying uh, that it was doing uh, everything in its sentences to keep Ernest away from the community as long as I can. Um, and here they found that... Uh, the district court's um, erroneous belief that it was required to impose consecutive sentences uh, did not change anything. It did not prejudice uh, Ernest because uh, the district court was doing what it was intending to do anyway. Um, and here they found that, you know, the district court had, had considered uh, the relevant factors. And even though uh, the district court did not specifically mention all of them, uh, there was nothing reversible in that. And so uh, the Supreme Court affirmed. Yeah, it's the end of the Supreme Court today, right? I believe it is. Oh, good. I didn't uh, miss one. Uh, let's go to the Court of Appeals. You got one? I have one, and quite a doozy. Uh, this is um, one of the longer opinions I've uh, read, and we start out with a published opinion from the Nebraska Court of Appeals, and this is uh, 
Herink versus Blue Stem Energy Solutions. And this is an appeal um, from a motion for a directed verdict, um, after which a jury trial uh, found that uh, Blue Stem was in, in breach of a contract uh, and determined that the fair market shares of Henrik's uh, interest in Blue Stem had been $2 million. And so the background of all of this was essentially that uh, Henrik was a uh, vice president of Blue Stem and he owned membership units as a part of that. And so uh, he has all of these membership units. And at some point, uh, Blue Stem decides that they want to let him go and they have an employment contract, which basically uh, goes through valuing these shares and, and essentially buying him out uh, should they ever choose to uh, fire him. And basically, the entire fistfight in this case begins over what the valuation of those shares is. And so uh, they go through and they have experts and they have um, a trial. And essentially what's happening here is that Blue Stem is arguing that they complied with the provisions of the employment contract and the actual contract language in determining the value of uh, Herring's 12,000 units. And... Um, everything surrounds around uh, determining what basically the fair market value of these are. And so uh, they continue to ask for a directed verdict based on the valuation that had happened um, from Blue Stem. Interesting piece with Blue Stem is it was kind of an internal audit as far as the value. And it sounds like uh, the person who actually did the audit and was their expert regarding the valuation of Herring shares was a uh, related party and so that kind of created a little bit of a conflict there and and i guess was maybe an underlying piece of of why this was such um, an issue and maybe such a discrepancy in uh, valuation but basically they go through all this there's a pretty heavy discussion in regards to both this actual employment and then uh, you know experts in determining values of these shares and and all of those things and so the jury returns and says basically here that the fair market value of these shares is actually two million dollars and not the uh, four hundred thousand that blue stem was trying to offer and then and i actually thought this was um maybe a a, a kind of a niche area that's uh, discussed in depth and that is uh pre-judgment and post-judgment interest and here we have a contract issue and basically what is argued on appeal is that uh Herring, even though he is disputing uh the fair market value of his shares and the determination here Herring had essentially said that they had complied with the actual contract. So uh, maybe, you know, again, there was a discrepancy here, and the jury said that there was a breach of contract and not paying the right amount. But it is argued uh, by Blue Stem that, hey, you know, there was a valid contract here. We tried to comply with the contract and giving a commercial value for this property. And so you're not entitled to the 12% prejudgment interest and the 5% post-judgment interest. You're entitled to the 1% interest, which is contemplated under the contract. And so there is a huge discuss discussion of uh, prejudgment issue. Uh, of prejudgment interest, of contracting over that. Eventually, the Court of Appeals finds that uh, the contract was valid, that they had contemplated um, the interest amount in there and award the one percent, the uh, approximately one percent uh, prejudgment interest. And then they deal with the post-judgment interest issue because basically they said that it wasn't contemplated by the uh, contract directly, and so they. There's a ton of discussion regarding the case law, the law surrounding uh, post-judgment interest, the federal law and where all that lies. And basically they come to the decision that uh, the 
interest that was again contemplated in that contract was what controlled and so they find one percent uh, basically across the board uh, but again ton of great discussion as far as post-judgment interest um, case law and then maybe where nebraska is headed as far as uh, the law goes on post-judgment interest because it looks like there isn't a ton of controlling authority actually in the state of nebraska on what we do with post-judgment interest um, and then so they uh, end up affirming the district court both on the the jury award the decisions on the directed verdict and then uh, the decision to use the contemplated amount in the uh, contract as the pre and post-judgment interest rather than the statutory rates. Um, but there is a large dissent here basically saying that, um, you know, this contract didn't actually directly contemplate the pre-judgment interest or the post-judgment interest. And here it was a breach of contract. And so um, the dissenting uh, judge here in, in this case uh, said that they would have awarded, and this was uh, Judge Reedman, would have awarded the statutory pre-judgment and post-judgment uh, rates based on that, and otherwise they agreed with the remainder of the opinion. But, you know, and one of those things that's very valuable because 12% makes a huge difference, especially on a on a $2 million award. Um, and so if you have something where uh, you're dealing with uh, pre-judgment interest and post-judgment interest, you know, probably something that's worth taking a look at, uh, especially for your client's sake. In Ray, estate of Diana Lair uh, versus Rhonda Ullman and Rebecca Gaffney. Um, Rhonda and Rebecca are brother and sister sisters, and they don't talk to each other and haven't talked to each other, it says, since 2009. Um, they stopped speaking to each other. That's case law uh, in 2009. And um, at some point, the daughter here um, was... Uh, in charge of it was personal representative prior to her mother's passing and as part of that she had to the mother you know had a medical issue slipped and fell i believe something like that and they had to sell the home they took the house sale proceeds the instructions from the mother were um, take these proceeds and give them to you know the money guy and give them to the money person to manage and uh, what that money person did was they put it in a, a joint account with right of survivorship and the personal representative, one of the daughters, um, actually, you know, wrote mom's name uh, on the uh, account in order to get that started. And they signed as both PR and mother on that document. Now, um, the question here becomes, is that a breach of the fiduciary duty to the mother? And the county court here uh, actually found that it was, and they held that, uh, or that, the offending uh, PR had to repay that amount and it was held in a constructive trust. The issue here, I guess, on appeal is whether the Nebraska Uniform uh, Power of Attorney Act from 2012 would actually prohibit that. Here, there was nothing, uh, you know, under that act itself, there wouldn't be anything necessarily that prohibited this in general. But here, it's specifically prohibited because the personal representative was benefiting from those uh, transfer proceeds by putting it in a joint account with right of survivorship. And there was a specific clause in the personal uh, representative's document that said that the 
power of personal and family maintenance, an agent may not, and that was capitalized, use my property to benefit the agent or a person to whom the agent owes an obligation of support unless I have included that authority in the special instructions or grant a specific authority. So without that authority, and because that document was uh, stated as such saying may not, it was uh, you know, more specific than the Nebraska Uniform Power of Attorney Act from 2012, and therefore the uh, uh, personal representative was prohibited from doing that act, and so the county court was affirmed in that and then um, had to pay back a significant amount of money in held in constructive trust to, la- trust to later be distributed. Okay, next case we come to is Atkins versus Al Abudi, and this is an appeal from the uh, District Court of Lancaster County. Basically what happens here is that the County Court of Lancaster County, sitting as a small claims court, had entered a judgment of $3,500 in favor of Atkins against A and B auto sales. Um, and so Alabudi appealed to the Lancaster County District Court uh, where the order of the small claims was reversed, finding that Alabudi could not be held personally liable uh, for A and B's actions because A and B was never made a party to the action and so therefore judgment could not be entered against it and so atkins uh, pro se appealed basically there was a ton of issues with this vehicle um, and in regards to things that were discovered additional repairs that had to be made uh, major problems with the brakes and things of that nature and essentially, uh, the Court of Appeals found that the district court had directly or had correctly determined uh, that A and B could not be held liable because they were not named a party in the action, nor were they properly served. And so, um, therefore, since there was not a valid judgment uh, uh, rendered against A and B, uh, they could not be um, held liable in this uh, action. And uh, therefore, the uh, district court was affirmed. All right, uh, county or excuse me, court of appeals decision. This is uh, Mirgird v. Cotalist Corp. Q A T A L Y S T. So I'm not sure how to say that. Anyway, um, this one hurt my brain, um, and I'll I'll tell you why. Uh, it there was an interest from 2007. There was default interest uh, from a default judgment, um, and it specified in the order that a certain amount of uh, you know, funds were going to be added as interest per day at the rate of 16% uh, per year. And that was said in the default order from back in 2007. And the original judgment amount was $55,000. It's in on one claim, there was 33 on another and 22 on a third. So that has uh, made a little money over the years at, at that interest rate. And it looks into whether that was um, the right way to calculate the interest. I did not understand uh, this. The calculation. Sorry, I, I just don't. I'm We're not, lawyers, we don't I, math. <laughs> I'm not a numbers guy. I, I need some help to, to tell you the truth on this. But oh, uh, what ended up happening was that the uh, Court of Appeals here affirmed the judgment of the district court and you know kudos to the district court judges because they have to know yeah i mean you have to look at that you have to know everything from capital punishment to you know math the math mathed though in the end right the math mathed enough uh, i think they, we math enough to get by math 
<laughs> they mathed well. So we got one more. Applause, yes, and applause to the mathing. Yes. yes. Uh, next case we have is State versus Smith, and this is an appeal from a plea-based conviction of fourth offense refusal to submit to a chemical test, driving under revocation, and operating a motor vehicle to avoid arrest. Um, the issues on appeal are that the sentence was excessive and that she had received ineffective assistance of counsel. And so basically here the um, big issue, she gets arrested for the uh, DUI 4th, the failure um, or the uh, refusal, driving under revocation, uh, a myriad of other minor infraction charges, and then eventually has a failure to appear and had left the state and, and uh, had, that had resulted in some other uh, charges. And so we have the sentencing hearing, um, and and again, uh, goes through a lot of things that had happened, reasons, uh, the defense attorney goes through reasons that uh, she had failed to appear, uh, history, uh, and all kinds of uh, mitigating circumstances. Uh, basically here, what Smith is arguing on appeal is uh, that basically uh, a couple of things is, is where she... Uh, lobbies her arguments and the first is that uh, her trial uh, counsel had basically failed to um, correctly indicate the strengths of her pre-sentence pre-sentence report uh, they that her counsel had failed to um, note basically uh, all of the mitigating circumstances the things that she had done as far as uh, trying to uh, take classes to remedy these situations, um, letters of support, individuals that um, had written on her behalf and, were, and or were present at sentencing. Um, and so she's basically saying that uh, trial counsel had uh, failed to do all of these things. Um, she then argues that trial counsel had uh, had um, not allowed her to make an informed decision in regards to a uh, plea, had not given her the opportunity to uh, adequately review the uh, evidence in this case. And then, interestingly enough, I, I and I kind of like this one, the, the final argument on appeal was that uh, her trial counsel had failed to assert the defense of necessity, which the Court of Appeals takes the time to address and basically says um, that in this case, um, the necessity that uh, she is arguing here, uh, which I believe was that she had to go pick up uh, a pregnant friend, um, was not uh, able to be availed in this case, and that there was no uh, justification in this uh, situation for someone to uh, choose to drive while intoxicated uh, to go help in a, in a matter like this. And so they do take the time to address that justification argument, uh, even though they um, probably did not have to, but there is some, uh, you know, a couple of blurts of interesting uh, case law in that regard. But eventually they take everything. The sentence was within the statutory range. Uh, they did not find any sort of ineffective assistance of counsel on the uh, appellate record. And so therefore they affirmed the decision of the district court. All right. Happy December, right? Happy December. Hey, did you go to that volleyball game? I did we, go to that volleyball game. Are going to talk game. about that later? No, we can talk about it now. Oh, you want to talk about it on this one? I did talk about it. I, yeah, no, I did go to that volleyball game. Did you have a hot dog? I did. I did. So, yes, yeah, so con- to, to the concession foods we go. Um, okay. I've thought about this one in depth. Um, so, Nebraska games, you absolutely have to put hot dog, and I think you put hot dog anywhere. You put a popcorn in there because you have to have. Sure. Popcorn's great. Yeah. Um, you know, a sneaky pick, which sneaks into my top five, is a dill pickle. Generally cheap, um, you know, easy to have. 
the thing about that is if somebody's picking it out of there with their hands, that's yeah. that's a real danger with a yeah with a uh, a pickle. Um, next is a classic, which is a Reese's uh, candy bar, and I understand that's just a normal you know or candy bar. But when we're talking about a yeah, you like Reese's cups? I mean, it's considered okay. uh, well, yeah, we're considering you call it. I, I would call, call it a candy, candy bar. bar. Well, yeah, I mean, it's with all the candy bars. Reese's peanut butter, and cups. it's in a squ- yeah, but it's in a square. Okay, sorry. <laughs> well, either way, well, not yeah, we can leave that one. And then the um, fifth and uh, final thing, which someone had presented to me, is a walking taco, which may be kind of a Nebraska exclusive. Yeah. You know, you maybe can't get that at every concession stand, but, you know, a walking taco from one is great. And also, I have a bonus, most overrated concession stand Ooh. food pretzels. Terrible. They are so hit or miss. They're either too salty, yes. not enough. Your cheese is so key. It is just a cheese dipping instrument, and I will die on that hill. I no, listen. You, you took a step back as if you, I was going to disagree with you. I am not disagreeing with you. What I will tell you is that a pretzel, a baked pretzel, a super pretzel, done correctly, is a slice of heaven. The monstrosities that you were given at uh, ballparks and football games that come frozen in a box that are dipped in water and thrown on a rack. Terrible. It's not a pretzel. No. My Bavarian heritage is rolling in its... Cannot, yes. In its proverbial grave, yes. Uh, So do you have one? Do you have a concession (laughs) food? No. For the... the, I I mean, this was... I like popcorn. Okay. All right. That's it for this uh, point two law review. And we're starting a different song. Anderson Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. Hey, that's us. Yeah. And uh, that's it for this week. Uh, Go back to episode one. Listen to the disclaimer. We have uh, offices in Kearney, Holdridge, Minden. I played this off the Elf soundtrack. Yeah, which this is, is great. Christmas Eve. Uh, and then that's it, I think. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Outside the snow is falling and friends are calling you. Come on, it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you.